Welcome, everyone, to a new episode of the Transcript Podcast. You've got me, Scott Krisloff, I'm editor of the Transcript, along with Eric Mokaya, who's our lead author. We sent out a new issue of the newsletter yesterday, and we focused on the Fed meeting last week. The Federal Reserve met, raised interest rates by another quarter point, and Jerome Powell had a press conference after that. I think the headline that everyone knows at this point probably is that inflation is still too high, according to the Fed. But they are getting ready to pause, it looks, or at least signaling that they're ready to pause. Jerome Powell explicitly said that he sees monetary policy is tight here. So it's no longer at a neutral rate. They finally got to a tight rate. And as such, they may leave it here for a prolonged period of time, but they're signaling that they're going to be data dependent and looking for how inflation evolves and the economy evolves from here. Eric, any thoughts? Yeah, I think the thought on the post, I think that's, that was what the market picked generally. Definitely the change in language is very notable from the March to May for FOMC releases. But I think I wanted to highlight the fact that they want to be data dependent. And for many times we've said on the transcript, they should be reading the transcript. This week, I think the kind of really nice highlights we made for the very pointed quotes from CEOs in earnings calls, pointing whether it, is it hot or cold at the same time. How is the situation in the markets? But from you highlighting those two sections, hot and cold, where do you feel like the economy is at now? Should they, is it hot or cold presently? No, I think on the hot side, actually, one of the things that we've been noticing, little simmers of over the past few weeks, is that inflation actually is getting like a short-term tailwind here. It seems like there are some things that could boost inflation a little bit relative to how goods inflation had come down year over year previously. By the middle of the summer, we may start to see a little bit more bubbling of inflation again. And we're seeing food companies talking about mid-single-digit inflation, high-single-digit inflation by the end of the year. We're, talking, we're hearing energy companies talk about having low inventories of gasoline, for instance. These are all contributors to inflation. But on the other hand, you've got uh, credit. You've had medium-sized bags fail. And people are getting more restrictive with credit out there. And so that plus higher interest rates really could put a big damper on the economy, which obviously would be a huge headwind to inflation. So which of these balances, how they end up, it reminds me of a newsletter from several weeks ago, Fire and Ice, where you have the economy on fire, but then the Fed trying to throw ice on it. Feels like we're still in a similar situation. Any thoughts? So I think, yeah, so picking from that, it would be then that if that's, the kind of data that we have from the transcription for learning scores, it would feel that we are in for a bit of a pause and not like a pivot. They may be at the way the Fed waits for more data to be able to make a confirmation whether they should truly pivot as the market really wants to or, or not yet. But it seems like the market reads a pause as a pivot at the same time. Uh, it feels like a pause would be more like saying, okay, we have achieved our goal and we are ready like, to turn the other way. But was something else, of course, the ECB itself is saying not pausing yet. I don't know how those two diverge usually historically, but it feels like the ECB is not yet at all ready to pause. So they increased rates last week. And it seems like for them, the economy is still not yet at the, at the level of inflation that they want to pick up. Uh, but something else has happened last week. JP Morgan took over another bank, not another bank, like took over a bank, of course, First Republic. It's kind of sad to see the end of such a powerful brand of a bank in terms of that sound, because consumers very well. We've been following the earnings calls for, for a long time. And it's sad to see the end of a bank like that. And definitely, what's your take on that now? It's three banks now. It's actually much more 
in terms of total assets, we are almost in the fifth month of the year, and we're already way above the total assets in terms of banks that went under in 2008 now. What's your take? I think for JP Morgan, having First Republic under its umbrella is going to be a real synergistic brand for yeah. them. If you think about the way they go to market today, you basically have either Chase or JP Morgan. And Chase is really like a mass market brand. And then JP Morgan is really like a high upper tier, high net worth brand in addition to commercial bank primarily. And so First Republic is a really good mass affluent brand to sit in between the two of those. But it has been a great bank. So JP Morgan gets the opportunity to open up a new growth channel for themselves here at the highest level. What does that uh, mean for small banks though? Because the big guys will definitely be waiting. Well, and then the other thing you also notice in the markets is once First Republic was gone, the next is, okay, is it Parkwest? Is it going to be another bulk zones or something like that? So I think there's already an eye in the market for which bank will be next in terms of going down. And that doesn't create a lot of trust in terms of the regional banking system though. What's your thought? Yeah, I mean, I think bank investors are very well trained now that the second that there's any instability at a bank, the regulators will come in, wipe out equity holders and force the sale of the bank. And so it's really hard to be an investor in any bank that is remotely troubled. And so if you look at Western Alliance over the past week, or what is PacWest is the other one that seems to be in the crosshairs playbook, there's not it's going to be pretty hard for these bags to stand on their own two feet and be allowed to just play out the storm. And so investors will test them, push them as far as they can in order to see whether they'll be able to survive it or not. But And maybe tapping into experience in banking and I think being a bank analyst, how does this compare to 2008 in terms of banks are failing? Is did the Fed and maybe the deep the FDIC stepped in this much to save like banks as much as this. No, the, the environment changed a lot in 2008 mm -hmm. between the start of the banking crisis really started like the summer of 2007 until the height of the banking crisis in the fall of 2008 and then didn't really resolve in the end until like first quarter of 2009. And throughout that time from summer of 2007 until fall of 2008, we used to talk about moral hazard. We used to talk about the government stepping in, bailing out banks, and what that would what that would do to capital markets if people thought that the government would bail them out. And so, actually, the long unwind of the banking system was heavily dependent on the government not stepping in, was taking like a laissez-faire approach to the banking industry. And then, in the fall of two thousand eight, then when things started started to get really acute, then the government changed the way that it was thinking about it with TARP, et cetera. And then by the first quarter of 2009, the government took a very aggressive approach in making sure that bank stress was being resolved. Quantitative okay. easing obviously started in that first quarter of 2009. And so we're living now in a world where regulators have trained us based on that financial crisis to expect swift action. And in some ways, that's actually creates more pressure on equity values for these banks. Yeah, they're under pressure. I think they're performing much worse this year, I think, in the KBW index, I think, is way down as compared even to turn date itself. The key question that you're being asked always is which bank is next in terms of being in crisis mode? And by the way, if you have time, listen to the Starwood Property Trust CEO. He had some really negative text in terms of solely attributes the crisis in the regional banks and in the real estate to the Fed acting, are raising interest rates a bit too fast. 
And he raises a question there, which I think he also highlighted this week, that there's heavy exposure in terms of CRE to the regional banks, and they're being forced to dispose of a lot of these assets at below market values. So I'm not so sure, like, what does that portend for regional banks and in terms of also, are there opportunities maybe for some of our listeners to check out maybe some highly undervalued real estate company? Because one of the, one of the things that the Starwood property said is that the market is treating the entire CRE sector as really bad and they're valuing them really poorly. And that says that there, there could be potential parts of the market which are not as badly affected as the rest where you can actually pick some value properties. I don't know so much about the CRE environment so far. Any texts on the CRE and regional banks exposure? Yeah, I think we did a spaces last week focusing on the banking industry. And I think that one of the things that has been striking to me about this banking crisis is how the focus of the crisis has shifted over time from place to place, where it started with SVB around their health to maturity portfolio and really just a very classic acute background and then shifted towards uninsured deposits and people taking out uninsured deposits. Now it does seem to be that there's more focus around aggregated mortgages and specifically office exposure, office commercial real estate exposure. And that is a bit concerning. That's very concerning, actually, to the extent that this storm is going to start to focus at those assets because there is so much exposure in the small and mid-cap bank space to commercial real estate. And on the office side, you are seeing material changes in occupancy. And you have very little trading of office buildings. And some of the data points that you're seeing are really negative in terms of one big building that traded in San Francisco that I think was 70% below its peak market value. And people are afraid to mark these assets to market right now. And the fundamentalists don't seem to be getting a whole lot better in terms of returns to the office and really how companies will end up utilizing office space. It's going to be a long time before we really get back to the peak. So, especially in a B-class building. It does feel like a tough time for CRE generally. But beyond that also, it's, I mean, there's a lot of talk about chat GPT. And I think we had a first casualty of a big kind of business model that actually be affected by chat GPT in the name of check, where students are now having fun with chat GPT and they've forgotten that they need to pay for check and all. Any thoughts on that? But also like from Uber saying that the developer actually most impacted in terms of boosting productivity. And I think it's something that we were talking about before before we started the, the podcast was that I myself, I now chat GPT very useful in terms of augmenting what you're doing at the transcript very easily so that you can, it, it doubles up, it creates more efficiency in terms of being able to quickly search, quickly summarize some things. And at the same time, use your knowledge and experience to complement these skills to be able to perform much at much more efficient levels. I think that's what I'm seeing from my personal experience in terms of chat GPT and AI so far. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's the first thing that we're picking up where it's very clear a company is in the crosshairs that's a public company, but I don't think it's going to be the last. I think this is part of the natural adoption and creep of AI into the economy. This is a big wave, big wave. You can't afford to miss it, so to speak. So let's end maybe the podcast with a bit of a chat on Baksha Hathaway. This weekend was a big weekend. And the Oracle Omar was hosting his annual party. For me, it is outstanding though to see that he's filled an entire stadium of people. I see that in football and soccer matches. I don't see that in investing. It's, it shocks me. And the variety of questions, people from all over the world, like all of them, kids from 14 to 80, people to 90, 95. 
think it's impressive how he has managed to influence an entire generation of investors into the mode of value investing. I think it's remarkable from my perspective. It, it's certainly remarkable. It's very interesting and especially surprising considering that value investors have gotten crushed over the last 15 years. So it's little money in value investing in the last 15 years. Buff is, is an icon unto himself, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, he does. He does keep living. And uh, hopefully one of one of these days we get to Omaha myself before <laughs> anything happens to our Oracle. That said, thank you so much for joining us on the tra- on the transcript podcast this week. If you're new, please subscribe and do share the transcript. Really appreciate your feedback and comments and very valuable insights and helping us keep keep growing. Thank you so much. And uh, yeah, see you again next week as we continue with key quotes from earnings calls.